Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Friday, two weeks ago, our president, President Biden, officiated at what is arguably the most solemn ceremony that is ever held at the White House. He didn't do this as the chief executive. He didn't do it as the leader of the Democratic Party. He didn't do it in most of his capacities as what many would call leader of the free world. He did it as commander-in-chief. Some of you probably watched it on C-SPAN. He conferred three medals of honor. Uh, Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash from Florida, a platoon leader in action in uh, Iraq in 2005. He was the first black recipient of the Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. Christopher Solis, Sergeant First Class, a Jewish soldier for his action in Afghanistan in 2018. He was a combat engineer and a ranger, and both of them were not present for the ceremony. Of course, they received their awards posthumously. Uh, Cash's award went to his wife, Tamara, and Solis's award went to his widow, Katie. The third recipient, Master Sergeant Earl Plumley is from Clinton, Oklahoma, just north of here between uh, Oklahoma City and Amarillo. And he survived for his action in Afghanistan in 2013. He also, an army soldier with the Special Forces, a weapons sergeant, received the Medal of Honor. A solemn ceremony, pretty rare, pretty infrequent. It's only been observed 30 times since the Vietnam War. There have been over 3,500 Medals of Honor that have been conferred, but 40% of those were given during the Civil War, and it doesn't diminish the significance of, of, uh, of the honor, but frankly, until 1918, it was the only medal conferred for valent, uh, valent action and gallantry in combat. Today, we've got the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, the Soldier's Medal, so in the 20th century, during World War I and World War II Vietnam and the action since then, it is pretty rare that it is conferred. And it's especially rare for it to be conferred on someone who is not a natural-born American citizen. Over 700 of those 3,500 have been given to uh, soldiers, airmen, sailors, and others that were not naturally born. Uh, a good example of that was in World War II, Staff Sergeant Isidore Jockman. He was Jewish. He was one of 17 recipients, and he was awarded posthumously as well. He was born in Berlin. There have been only two Medal of Honor winners that I can find that actually went back to the country or to the theater of operations where they were born and fought the enemy who was, in fact, of their, 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 their native blood. 
He was one of those. Isidora Jockman then moved to Baltimore and enlisted when he was 20 years old to go back to Germany and to fight the Nazis. You see, he had six uncles and aunts who had been killed in the Holocaust. And he was at the village of Flamierge in Belgium during the Battle of the Bulge in January 1945. And the village and his unit, his parachute unit, were being attacked by mortar, artillery, and two tanks. Those are the three big guns on the army battlefield. They were about to be overrun. The village and his unit was taking heavy, heavy casualties. And they were all hunkered down in, in defensive positions. And finally, Isidore then jumped out of his foxhole, ran across an open field under heavy attack and fire from the two tanks, picked up a bazooka that had been uh, from a fallen comrade, and attacked the two tanks and drove them back. He was killed in his attack, but he saved the village and he saved his unit. And of course, his award was posthumous. You know, there are two or three things that come to mind when I think about that story. One is allegiance. Allegiance. You know, allegiance is more than just fulfilling our duty. We use, we use phrases such as above and beyond the call of duty. It's more than that, allegiance of this type. It's more than loyalty to a flag. You know, I wonder what was going through his mind when one moment he was hunkered down in his bunker and the next moment then he jumped out on the battlefield and started attacking those tanks. Can you imagine? Do you think that he was thinking about the flag? Do you think that he was thinking about the Constitution of the United States, which he had sworn to defend? Do you think he was thinking about national ideals such as liberty and equality and democracy? Do you think that he was thinking about a cause? I think he was thinking about self-preservation, but not just for uh, himself, but for his comrades. Wow. It's not above and beyond the call of duty. In those instances, we use a different kind of phrase. He gave the full measure of what? Devotion. He gave his life. He did so out of loyalty. He did so for his comrades in arms. He did it for his friends that were in the foxhole in the bunker next to him. And it reminds us, of course, of John 15. Greater love has no person than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Allegiance is more than just duty. And victory and even survivability, a second observation, I think, is this. There comes a point where you cannot retain, maintain a defensive position. If you're going to survive, and certainly if you're going to be victorious, you must come out of the foxhole and you must attack the enemy aggressively, offensively, Eventually, you must go on the offensive or you will not survive. There's a third observation, and that has to do with citizenship. Here's a man who was born in Germany, was born in Berlin, and he was a naturalized American. He forfeited his German citizenship in order to become an American citizen. Good citizenship is not a matter of natural birthright. Good citizenship is not a matter of geography. No, good citizenship is something that comes out of conscientious choice and acting on it. 
And as I thought about this, this is my definition of good citizenship for whatever it's worth. I think it, compri- it's, it comprises at least five things. I think it is identity, loyalty, duty, civility, and industry. You stop and think about it, identity. You know, it's not just being born an American that makes someone a good citizen. It's actually embracing that identity. And naturalized citizens do that. When they then are naturalized, they renounce all other allegiances, and they embrace being an American. Love of country, patriotic pride should not be jingoistic nationalism. That's not what I'm talking about. And I know that there are people here today that are not American citizenship citizens. I, I hope that you love your country as much as I love mine. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. You know the song by Lee Greenwood. What does he say in that song? I am what? Proud to be an American. You see, there's an identity that we embrace. There is a loyalty. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. But when we do that, it's not a piece of cloth only. We do so because we're one nation under God, indivisible, standing for what? Liberty and justice for all. You see, there's a loyalty. It's not just blind allegiance. It's not my country is always right. Stephen Decatur reminded us of that in the 19th century. Commodore Stephen Decatur. Our country and our intercourse with foreign nations, may she always be right, but right or wrong. And there is the phrase that we are reminded. We hold our nation and our leaders accountable for right behavior. But what did he say? Right or wrong, still our country. You know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, anyone serving in uniformed services, and the President of the United States take an oath of allegiance to do what? To defend the Constitution of the United States. We, the people. And when you read that preamble, there there are six principles for which we stand in it. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? What are those principles at the beginning of the Constitution that we pledge ourselves to defend when we put on the uniform of armed services? Unity, justice, peace, safety, prosperity, and liberty. And then there's duty. Not just identity, not just loyalty, but duty. There is a moral and legal responsibility that every citizen of any nation and I pray of the United States, has, and it is to do the right thing. You know, Augustine said this, in doing what we ought, that is the right thing, we don't deserve any praise because, you see, that is our duty. There's a moral dimension to that. The moral dimension is that we defend not just our rights, but we defend other people's rights. We live by the law. We follow the Constitution and all of the laws. President Obama put it this way, we the people, there's the phrase from the Constitution, recognize that we have responsibilities as well as rights, that our destinies are bound together, that our freedom, which only asks, it doesn't just ask what's in it for me, but what about my commitment to others? A freedom without love or charity or duty or patriotism is unworthy of our founding ideals 
and those who died in their defense. So there's duty. And then there's civility. Or is there? It has two dimensions. I think first of, first of all, civility is a, general, a genuine respect for others. You know, Mahatma Gandhi put it this way, civility does not mean the mere outward gentleness of speech cultivated for the occasion, but an inborn gentleness and desire to do the opponent good. Civility isn't just about being kind to your friends. Civility is also looking across the aisle in Congress and caring about your, the person that is in the other party. It has another dimension. It also has to do with decency, propriety, good manners. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Emerson said that civility has a deep moral component to it. Henry Fielding, one of the earliest novelists in English history, was not just a novelist and a dramatist. He also helped to found the first London police force. And he put it this way about civility. Perhaps the summary of good breeding, you see, there, there is the idea of decency and propriety. It can be reduced to this rule. Behave unto all men as you would that they should behave unto you. Hmm. This will most certainly oblige us to treat all humans with utmost civility and respect, there being nothing that we desire more than to be treated so by them. What was Henry Fielding quoting? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said it, didn't he? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Civility. And then finally, there's industry. When we're able-bodied in this nation... We ought to work hard. Now, not everybody's capable of doing that, but when you are able-bodied, you ought to work hard. But even if you can't work hard physically, everybody can make a constructive contribution to society. Teddy Roosevelt put it this way, the first requisite of good citizenship in this republic of ours is that that person shall be able and willing to pull his or her own weight. So what does that have to do with this morning's message? When we look at 1 Peter, Peter wrote to Christians in what is today Turkey, Asia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Bithynia, about 64 AD from Rome. Mark was probably with him. Mark had been with Paul earlier. And he writes really what is a manual for a Christian citizenship in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way, but I, I believe it is. The situation is this. The church has experienced opposition, first by the Jews and then by the Gentiles, and it is going to face more widespread and intense persecution in the near future sanctioned by the government of Rome. And Peter exhorts them to remain faithful in the first two and a half chapters. He begins by talking about their spiritual inheritance, which they have reserved for them in heaven, and reminds them that they can draw strength from their certain knowledge of salvation. And then he exhorts them in chapter 2 to live holy and worthy lives in service of God. And then from the middle of chapter 2 to the middle of chapter 3, he talks about examples and exhorts them to submission to proper authority. And then we come to this pivotal passage that we're about to read. And in this passage in chapter 3, beginning in uh, uh, the, uh, verse number 8, he talks about 
Christian duty. He summarizes what Christian duty is. He urges them to defend the gospel and to serve as witnesses to others. And then he's about to encourage them to take a strong stand in the face of coming persecution and suffering. But before he does that then, he begins this passage with talking about Christian civility, one of the five things that we mentioned a moment ago. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse number eight. To sum up, all of you be harmonious sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. You know, the context of this, if you think about what I said about maybe five principles of good citizenship, you see these in Peter. It is a manual of how to be a good citizen. He talks about identity. Our identity is in Christ. He begins this in chapter 1 when he says, We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And in chapter 2, that identity is not just individual, it's corporate. We are what? We are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. That's the identity of Gamble Street Baptist Church. There's a loyalty that Peter talks about in chapter 1. He says that though we have not seen Christ, yet we, we love him. And though we do not see him now, yet we still believe in him. And in this passage that we just read in verse number 15, it speaks about loyalty. We're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. So there's identity and there's loyalty. There's also duty that Peter talks about. At the very beginning of the letter, he says in verse number two, you see, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. It's the duty. And then he goes on in chapter two to three. He talks about the duties that we have in submitting to proper authority in the government and at work and at home. And so there is identity, there's loyalty, there's duty, there's also industry. In chapter 1, in verse 13, he says, to prepare our minds, to prepare our minds for action. And then he lays that out. What are the actions that he says that we're to fulfill? We're to be holy like God is holy. 
as members of a holy nation. We're to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God as a priesthood of believers. We're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. We're to abstain from evil and we're to be good witnesses to the world. And then after this passage, he goes on and talks about the duty of loving one another industriously and to be hospitable and to serve one another. You see, this is filled with action in the industry of a Christian citizen, the things that we do. And of course, this passage began with civility, the last of those principles. The standard of Christian civility is to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, sisterly, kind-hearted, humble, and blessing others. And the results are that we will have fullness of life, goodness, and peace, And in verse number 12, which we just read, he says, the reason for this is not just unity in society, it's because God's watching. It pleases God. And so we come to verses 13 through 17. And I think that there are certain expectations that Peter recognizes that God has of Christian citizens in all of those five dimensions. One of those is that we should serve the Lord as Zechariah suggested in his prayer, without fear, for the Lord goes with us. He goes ahead of us. Yes, we're to serve him, but we're to serve him fearlessly. And then we should fulfill a core duty of every Christian. And that core duty is that we should be prepared, that we should give a defense whenever we are asked to give an account of the hope that is in us, We're to give a defense of that. That is an obligation that each of us as a Christian citizen has. And then in this latter part of the passage, he then reminds us that we should back up our words with action. So let's take a look at those three things. In verses 13 through 14, he says, we should serve the Lord without fear. You know, I think I was in the store the other day and I just got so disheartened looking around at what was happening how people were behaving. I don't know about you. None of us is perfect. That's why we pray our prayers of confession. So I'm I'm not without guilt myself. But do you begin to feel sometimes that we live in an uncivil society? And by uncivil, not only that we're not civil to each other, but there seems to be no decency out there. Really discouraged by that. I think there are about four things that, that can neutralize, that conspire to neutralize, neutralize our Christian citizenship and our witness. Let me mention them. Intimidation, fear, ignorance, and hopelessness. And he talks about the first two of those here in verses 13 and 14, about intimidation and fear. We live in a culture that today that wants to silence the word of God. We live in a culture today that says, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't say that. You can't speak it this way. You have to be careful about hate speech. Much of what we proclaim about, believe it or not, the love of the gospel, people today are saying it borders on hate speech. Cancel culture. And culture tries to dismiss the Christian message and to silence us. You see, intimidation. Living in a sea of postmodern relativism, Academics from the world of science and philosophy, many of them say the Bible is irrelevant and they're dismissive and they sneer at the Christian citizen. 
And then you look out there at what's going on around us and you see the corruption of culture, you know, unbiblical, ungodly acts. And, 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 and sometimes we're just intimidated by that, if we're, if we're honest. And then secondly, sometimes we're fearful. We're fearful if we speak up that we will suffer recrimination, ridicule, reprisal, be accused not only of hate speech, but talking that silly Bible stuff. Well, this passage speaks to that. It says, don't fear. Serve the Lord without fear. And when it it comes to uh, ignorance and Hopelessness. He talks about that in verse number 15. But here he says, says, we need to remember this, that when we're reviled and rebuked and when they try to intimidate us, you know, whatever Satan hurls at the kingdom of God is temporary. He cannot inflict any real and permanent damage on the kingdom of God. Now he can hurt us individually. We can suffer and there will be persecution. But ultimately, God will vindicate those who take a stand for righteousness. We need to remember that. And even if we suffer, we're blessed in verse number 14. No doubt we will suffer if we take a stand for the Lord. You know, God did not call us to a life of ease. God did not call us to a life of non-resistance. We live in a culture today, the corruption of which must be resisted. And Christ warned us what that's going to give us. He sent his disciples out as sheep among what? Wolves. And he warned them. Hmm. Be wise as serpents, be innocent as doves. There are those out there that seek to do you harm if you proclaim the gospel. It begs this question, if we are living a life of ease to the point where we never suffer at all, it begs the question, are we really living up to the call that God has given us? Now, folks, I'm not saying that we, you know, we, we just take these stands on hills that are not worth dying for, okay? I'm not saying that we're always in your face about everything. That's not what I'm saying. But there comes a point in our lives where we are called to give a witness for Christ, and we may be ridiculed and reviled for it, and we must do it. And if we never suffer Indignity. If we never suffer the shame that the world would put on us, then it makes us ask this question, are we willing to bear the shame of the cross? You see, God blesses obedience in the face of suffering. Jesus said it in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those are you when uh, people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of things falsely against you for my name's sake. What does he say? He says... Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Do not fear, he says in verse number 14. Do not fear or be troubled. And this is what he said to Joshua and to Israel. Don't fear. Don't be troubled. Just as Zechariah prayed in his prayer, the Lord goes ahead of you. He goes with you. From a real and an eternal perspective, we have nothing to fear. For if God is with us, Paul tells the Romans in chapter 8, who can be against us? No insult, no accusation, no condemnation can stick 
to us if we obey God. No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no reviling, no rebuking can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We must make a commitment in 2022 to serve the Lord without fear. Secondly, we should fulfill our duty to defend the gospel in verse number 15. You see, this is driven by what? It's driven by loyalty, by one of those five principles, by loyalty to Christ. Sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Be loyal to him. And each of us is obliged, it says here, always to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us. Another way of putting that is this. Perpetually, instantly, in season and out of season, prepared to give a reasoned argument, an apologia, a reasoned argument to anyone who asks you for a word concerning the hope that is in you. This, is address, this addresses the other two things that I said that sometimes neutralize our witness, and that is ignorance. We're challenged today by skeptical philosophers and would-be scientists that say that they know everything from the halls of academia, and we're challenged by a corrupt culture out there. There is a tsunami wave of corruption in our society. And folks, sometimes we're intimidated by folks that think that, think that they're smarter than we are because they have all of the degrees and they do not have any empirical evidence, for example, that God exists in their mind. Folks, we need to remember this, that God's foolishness is wiser than the world's wisdom. God calls us to prepare and to be ready in season and out of season, alert instantly to reply to those challenges. And it means to be ready, we need to study. We need to know the Word of God. We need to study the Bible. That's why we do what we do in our Bible study on Sunday morning. That's why we have small groups. That's why we study the Word in, in, um, in our worship service every week. That's why we do it on Wednesday evening. Study the Bible and learn God's answers. But, you know, it also says always be ready. That means not just in time-wise, in every respect. We need to study other disciplines. We need to study outside the Bible. We need to arm ourselves and our minds to engage intellectually with reasoned arguments that answer those that challenge us. In, first, in the first chapter, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. But he says, prepare your minds. So we must study. We must not be ignorant. We must know the Word of God and we must know the fields in which we engage that gospel. And when it comes to hopelessness, when we're overwhelmed by the cultural tsunami that, that threatens to seek us, uh, sweep us away and we feel helpless, we need to remember that there is a hope in us and it is in Jesus Christ. We are to give a defense of the hope that is in us. That is not just an aspiration. That is the person of Jesus Christ that dwells in us. He is our hope. And we put our hope in his salvation. And that is, ultimately, we know that we have a place in heaven that he has prepared for us in the Father's house. But that hope that is within us is also the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that is in us. It is not just for someday we will be in heaven. It is for right now, engaging in the battle and the spiritual warfare, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is there, and he gives us courage in the battle. He enables us to be triumphant in the battle. The indwelling spirit, Jesus Christ, told us, I'm going to have you stand before governors and kings and you're going to give a testimony for me and don't you dare worry about what you're going to say ahead of time. Now, he didn't say don't prepare. <laughs> prepare ahead of time. 
But then don't worry about what you say because you're to say what is given to you at that instant. In season, out of season, be ready. And the Holy Spirit will evoke from you the words, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Do you ever sometimes feel fearful about responding to somebody when they have questions about the gospel? Or when they challenge you about your beliefs? Folks, if you have studied the Word of God and it is hidden in your heart, it's not just so that you won't sin against Him, it's so that we can be obedient. And you should not be fearful to open your mouth because the Holy Spirit, if you pray, the Holy Spirit will take over and He will give you the right words. We should not live in hopelessness, but we should be ready to speak the Word of God. The apologia is a reasoned argument. It's not apologizing. The... uh, The series, I like what uh, Elias has entitled this series. It is the unapologetic church. We give an apology, but we're not apologetic about it. We don't give excuses. It's not defensive. It's not just defending the gospel. It's not just hunkering down at Lemieres, Belgium. It's not just staying in your foxhole and watching those tanks overrun you. It's getting out of the bunker and assaulting the enemy. It's coming out of the bunker and it's taking on the offensive edge of the gospel because, folks, the gospel is a stumbling block. The gospel is an offense. And I don't mean that that suggests that we should be arrogant and mean-spirited. No, we're to be gentle and kind with it. But apologetics, folks, is about taking the Word of God into the enemy camp. Like the apostles, what did they do? They felt intimidated, didn't they? Acts, the fourth chapter, they felt intimidated. They felt helpless. They felt fear. And what did they do? What did they do, friends? They prayed. And they prayed for what? Confidence. And when they finished that prayer, what happened? The house was shaken. And then what did they do? They went forth and they proclaimed the word of God with what? With boldness. With boldness. You see, we are weak, but he is strong. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive by obedience to Jesus Christ. We should not be intimidated by folks that think they're smarter than the gospel. We should take the word of God to them. With what? With Christian civility, not with arrogance, not with insult for insult, not evil for evil, but with gentleness and reverence, he says. You see, the goal is redemption, not triumphalism. You see, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, Paul tells Timothy. That's not what I'm talking about. But the, but the Lord's servant should be kind to all. Apt to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, I don't need to remind you, you know this, but I'm going to say it. The goal is not triumph in the sense of defeating the friends that we have that attack us. That's not it. It's to do what? It's to reclaim them from a lost and dying world.
So what are our apologies? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be given some apologies. What are they? There are 14 of them from now till Easter. God exists and he loves you. Number two, truth exists. There is truth. God is the author. Christ embodies it and we can know the truth. Number three, there's only one right worldview. Unapologetically, there's only one right worldview and it's theism. God is the one eternally omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, perfectly free person who is the creator and sustainer of the universe. God is perfectly good and the source of all moral obligation. God is the ultimate reality that explains everything else. The self-perpetuating being who acts independently from anyone or anything else. God is beholden to no one. God is the great I am. Number, number four, God is one and yet he's three persons, the Trinity. And all academics say that's impossible. God created the cosmos from nothing. Matter is not eternal, only God is eternal. God is supernatural and mysterious, and his ways defy human reason and human skepticism. God performs miracles. He does it in many ways. God does not cause evil and suffering, yet he accomplishes his will despite their influence. The Son of Man, the Son of, man, the Son of God, became man through the virgin birth, and Christ is fully God and fully man. Jesus is the one and only Savior. There is only one way for salvation, and it is by grace through faith and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God resurrected Jesus from the dead, and Christ's victory over death grants eternal life. Heaven exists, and so does hell. And they are the eternal destinies determined by the choices that people make while they are living and breathing on this earth. The Bible is authentic. That means that it is the inspired Word of God. And the Bible is reliable. It is infallibly true, and it accomplishes everything that God intended it to accomplish when he issued it. These are the 14 unapologetic statements that the Bible makes that we are going to be proclaiming over the next three and a half months. And we must take into that tsunami of culture around us. And there is a third thing that is said here. Not only that we should be prepared to give a defense and to serve him without fear, but we should back up our words with action in verses 16 through 17. You see, when we declare our allegiance to God, Satan gets active and people also react. Some slander us, that means they backbite us, as evildoers, as malefactors. Well, we're in good company there, folks, because who was the chief malefactor? The chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, went before Pilate and they said, this man that stands you before you is a malefactor. He, he, he's a bad guy. We're in good company in that respect. Ironically, the charge was civil, <laughs> civil disobedience. He called himself king and he refused to pay taxes. They said he didn't, but that's what they said. They will revile us falsely for our good behavior once again, we're in the right place when they do that. You see, because when they revile us for our good behavior, it gives us an opportunity for two things, to bless them and to be blessed. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said what? Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you 
and pray for them which despitefully use you. And that is the language that is used by Peter here. And when we do that, you see, we bless them. And the result is that we are seen as children of our Father who is in heaven. We therefore are blessed. You see, when we make a declaration out there for Christ in the gospel, they will slander us and they will revile us. And if they don't do it verbally, they are still watching us closely. They watch us to see whether or not our actions match our words. The most powerful apologetic that we can issue in the world around us, we speak it, I'll preach it, we teach it, but the most powerful apologetic is a what? Is a godly life. You see, the world rightly ridicules the church when it is hypocritical. It rightly ridicules Christians when they are scandalous and their behavior is not of the gospel. I get it. But the world knows when our behavior matches our words and when it doesn't. Mahatma Gandhi admired Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount helped him form his philosophy for life. But you know what his assessment of, quote, Christianity was. It was negative. He said, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It is just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. The most powerful apologetic that we can communicate this next year in 2022 beyond words is that our actions will reflect the gospel and we will live lives like Christ. You see, the world cannot ignore that. If we live the gospel as though it is worth dying for, not just in order to make a public stand, although that's important. We must be willing to suffer ridicule and abuse. We must be willing to take the heat when we speak the gospel. And we should live lives so that when they accuse us of wrongdoing, they're brought to shame. You see, it's one thing for us to give a reasoned defense. It's another thing to live it out and to live as though we believe what we say. Now, why have we taken this text this morning, and what's it all about? 2022. 2022. I hope it's not 2022. Okay? I hope it's not 2020 again. In Revelation 3, I'm going to write a newsletter article tonight. In Revelation 3, it talks about the church at Philadelphia. And it says to the Philadelphians, you know, who were faithful in God's word and they did not, did not, did not deny the name of Christ. He said, behold, I do what? I open a door for you. And if I open a door for you, it will not be closed. I want us to stay focused on that this year. The Lord is going to open doors for us. Let's go through them. Let's be willing to share the gospel in meaningful ways in what we do and what we say and take a defense of the gospel to the enemy camp. Let's pray. Father, help us to serve you without fear. 
Help us to prepare to give a defense when we're asked to give an account, a reasoned argument that we understand communicates with clarity the hope of Jesus Christ that is in us, and help us live it out in ways that are incontrovertible, that the world, when they look at us, they may accuse us, but deep in their hearts, they are troubled. Deep in their hearts and their minds, they know that there's something true about what we say because we live out the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Who defeats my fierce foes? Who consoles my saddest woes? Who revives my waiting heart, healing all its hidden smart? Jesus Christ, the crucified. He calls us to take up our, to die to self and to take up our cross and to live crucified lives following his son Jesus Christ as we go. What's God's call for your commitment this morning? As you watch online, what commitment would you make to him and to his son Jesus Christ in 2022? As we stand together, would you respond to the invitation? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.